to our text this morning, which is Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8. It's on page uh, 639, if you're using a pew Bible. I encourage you to turn there and follow along. To read it for yourself. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8, on page 639. As we continue our study through Proverbs. And here's the focus verse this morning. It says, The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases Him. I'm sure at some point all of us, in one form or another, have had a a conversation with somebody uh, who tells you that they don't want to have anything to do with uh, church or, or God or the Bible or Christianity because all the people in church are just a bunch of hypocrites. I, okay, you've heard that one too. Um, yeah, I have. And then they go on to regale you with some story of some person they knew who was a churchgoer or a Bible quoter or whatever, but whose business practices were corrupt and whose family was a mess and you know who was a flander or whatever. They'll tell you some story of immorality that invalidates that. And and we've probably met people like that uh, ourselves. Someone who prays to heaven on Sunday, and then they live like hell Monday through Saturday. The irony in this, of course, is that that the, the God whose Bible they won't read, and the God whose church they won't attend, and the God whose Christianity they won't accept, that God actually hates hypocrites even more than they do. And that's what our text is about today. It's about the kind of religion that God wants and that God actually hates hypocrisy even more than any of us could ever hate it because He sees it even more clearly than we do. Um, So so we come here to this uh, theme of our worship of God, our religion, our our organized religion, what that's supposed to look like here in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8. And in a way, this is kind of a good summary of the sort of the theme we've been studying in Proverbs recently. It's, I guess you could think of it as sort of a close of this little subsection of Proverbs. We've been looking at the theme of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We've been looking at different attributes of God over the past couple Sundays, like His holiness, His sovereignty, His omniscience, His uh, wisdom, His word, trusting Him. And so to kind of put a bow on this little subsection, we could say, so what does this mean in terms of how we approach God? If God is this kind of awesome God, how should we approach Him when it comes to our public, corporate, ceremonial worship? Going to church and saying prayers and doing those things that we would qualify as kind of religious sorts of activities. And so what we have in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8, is God's take on religion. What God wants and what God doesn't want. It says in verse 8, "...the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked." But the prayer of the righteous, of the upright, pleases him. So in other words, there is a kind of religion that God detests, and there is a kind of religion that's pleasing to God. And so all I want to do this morning is just look at those two types of religion, those two types of religious expression, the kind that makes God go, yuck, and the kind that God says, yes, this is what I'm looking for. So let's look at the first one. The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked. Now, just a little by way of background, remember in those days when Proverbs was written, when the Israelite people, you know, sort of quote-unquote went to church, they were actually going to the temple, 
And part of their worship, a central part of it, was they were bringing sacrifices to God. They're bringing offerings. They're bringing uh, guilt offerings to cover their sins. And so it was based on the sacrificial system in the temple or in the tabernacle. So when it says here that God detests the sacrifices of the wicked, it's talking about their public worship in general, their prayers, their songs, their sacrifices. And, and so there's a disconnect between the ceremonial expression of love for God and the way that people live in their private life. And that's what God is getting at. In other words, when you look at God's law, when you look at the Bible, you could kind of divide, very generally speaking, the, the laws and commands in Scripture into two categories, very generally. You could categorize some of them as ceremonial laws, like in the Ten Commandments, um, uh, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's telling us how we're supposed to get together as God's people and worship Him. We're supposed to get together one day a week and honor Him on that day and set aside time like we're doing to honor Him. So that's a ceremonial law. And then there are moral laws in Scripture. And these are things like, you know, in the Ten Commandments, um, you know, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, do not covet, care for the poor and the needy. And so you see these two kinds of laws that tell us how to worship and then how to live our lives in a way that please God. So a hypocrite is a person who is doing the ceremonial law and proud of it, but they're not keeping the moral law of God. That's one way to define hypocrisy. It's somebody who's excelled at keeping the the rules of religion, but whose life betrays the religion that they profess. Um, And how does God feel about that? Well, verse 8, the Lord detests it. Which is funny because I find that I kind of gravitate toward it. So God and I seem to be going in different directions at this point. I, I think we as human beings gravitate toward the ceremonial. And I don't think it's just Christianity. I think it's any religion. Islam, Buddhism, uh, even those you know, religions that don't call themselves religions like New Age spirituality or therapeutic spirituality, whatever it is. You know, it's all religion. We just may not call it that. But we always focus on the techniques, whether the technique is going to church or the technique is meditation. That's just where we gravitate as human beings. And I think the reason is because ceremony and ritual and technique is safe. I can manage that. I can manage being religious. The hard thing is loving my neighbor as myself. And the hard thing is, you know... Uh, controlling my tongue instead of lashing out or getting angry or gossiping or whatever. I mean, that's the hard thing. The easy thing is is religion. And not only do we excel at religion, but we're kind of smug about it. I mean, haven't you ever felt sometimes when we sing a hymn here in church and you look at it and you go, actually, I know all the words of this hymn. <sighs> you know, I, I may just close my hymnal. <laughs> I'm just going to sing. No, 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 no. You need a hymnal? That's okay, that's okay. I don't (laughs) know. Or or like, you know, I I, I say, turn to Proverbs, you know, and and you're like, oh, right there. I win. Proverbs got it first. And, you know, and I mean, come on now. You feel smug about things like that. You feel smug about knowing all the liturgy. And there's a comfort in knowing, you know, when to stand up and when to sit down and and what to do on what day. And we have a a certain self-righteousness that goes with that. Uh, I remember when I was living up in the North Shore and going to seminary up there, and my wife and I were traveling down here to church because I started seminary, and they said, you've got to find a church, get plugged into a church. And this is where her parents came. And so we're like, well, we want to be near family, so let's go down here. So we were driving an hour from the North Shore to the South Shore on Sundays. And, you know, I'll be totally honest with you. I got a little self-righteous about that. 
I'm like, huh, I'm driving to church for an hour. Well, I must be serious, you know? Like, and then I'm on the roads, and the roads are totally clear. There's no one on the roads. I'm like, oh, I guess people aren't out going to church today except me. And, uh, and the, ir- the ironic thing, of course, is I'm driving as fast as I can to try to beat my speed record from last Sunday. I'm like, I, I did it in 54 minutes last Sunday. I'm going to try to get 53. And I'm like, you know, and I'm trying to get to church, and I'm so self-righteous about that. But God has such a radically different view. The Lord detests. He detests the sacrifice of the wicked. God hates hypocrisy. Nothing drives God more crazy than when people profess to worship Him, but whose lives betray that outside of church. He, he, just drives him, he detests it. In fact, detest might be too light of a word. The Hebrew word is toabah, which means an abomination. And I was struck by that word. I was like, abomination? When's the last time you used that in a sentence? <laughs> you, know, we, you know, in our politically correct, you're okay, I'm okay, everything's fine, there's nothing wrong culture, we don't call things an abomination. We just, it's not a word we use. Like, whoa. I mean, I guess there's a couple things we may still consider an abomination. I don't think our moral compass is completely gone. It's pretty broken, but it's not completely gone. There's still a few things we can all look at and say, okay, you know, crimes and sins against children, if you know what I mean. That's an abomination. Hopefully we can all look at that and just go, ugh. You know, 9-11. I hope we can all say that was evil. And not just like, well, it's a different worldview. I mean, that was wrong. I don't care what your religion is. That's an abomination to kill innocent people at that magnitude. But this is where we differ from God. Because whereas we look at a few little things, this little pile of bad things, and we go, ooh, that's an abomination. God sees all sin as abominable. Because even the smallest sin is an offense and a rejection of that which is most good. There's actually something that's even more sacred and wonderful than children. It's God Himself. He's even more wonderful than little babies. He's, you know, he is the awesome God. Little babies and their purity and innocence are just a tiny little reflection of the purity and awesomeness of God. So to sin as a, is a rejection of who God is and a rejection of His glory. It's beyond abominable. It's infinitely abominable. And the difference between us and God is, in, between me and God, is that I, I relativize it and I go, like, well, that's bad, but what I do is not so bad. But God sees all sin as sin and He sees it as abominable. And so... There's this revulsion in God. He detests it. He, he loathes it. The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked. I was looking up um, in Proverbs the different things that are abominable. You know, that's what I did this week. I don't know what you did. But I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to look up this word. Because, again, this is not a word I use. I need to understand what God is thinking here through the Bible. So what I did was I researched every place in Proverbs that you find the word abomination to see what things also God puts in that category. And let me just read you the, the list. It includes the following, uh, but not excluding, not limited to. Being perverse is an abomination to God. I like this one. Having haughty eyes. It's in Proverbs. You know, someone just stuck up and they're looking down on everyone else. Um, hands that shed innocent blood. A lying tongue. Hearts that devise wicked schemes. False witnesses. Get this one. A man who stirs up dissension among brothers is an abomination to God. So if there's like a little conflict and you're like, well, do you know so-and-so said this? But to God, that's just revolting. 
wickedness, false scales, which would be, false scales today would be like corrupt business practices, um, cheating people financially, crooked minds, lying lips, evil plans, arrogance, justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous. In other words, uh, using your power or authority to promote injustice in some form or another. And all that's an abomination to God. And those are all things in the moral category. So then, how much more abominable is it to God if all of those things displease Him and, and kindle His wrath, and we live that way, we live wickedly, to then put on the pretense of ceremonially worshiping Him? It's like insult to injury. That's like abomination squared or something. It's, you know, it's worse. It's like, I'm going to live against all of God's laws and reject His laws and then have the audacity to be like, you know, oh, I'm in church. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, God sees right through all of that stuff. And so He hates it and it kindles His wrath and His anger and His judgment. Or at least it did in the Old Testament, right? Because in the New Testament, God's nice. Uh, in the Old Testament, God was mean, but God's had some kind of extreme makeover and now He's nice. And, uh, and God tolerates, he to, he's very tolerant now. He's very accepting of lots of different things now. You know, he didn't used to be, but now he really is. He's much nicer in the New Testament. Yeah. But God is holy. He's holy. He's always holy. He always will be holy. He always hates hypocrisy. And so even in the New Testament you see it. So uh, let's do this. I just want to give you three stories very quickly, three little glimpses, three vignettes from the New Testament that show this theme carried forward for even us in the church. So here's what we do. Find a bookmark, put it in Proverbs 15, because we've got to come back into the other half of that verse. We have to find out what kind of worship God does want now that we're looking at what He doesn't want. And let's turn over to the first little vignette. It's in Luke chapter 11. It's on page 1030. Luke chapter 11, page 1030. In our first story, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the world expert champions at keeping the ceremonial law. They were the best. They're the guys who know how to do it cold. And Jesus challenges them on that because despite their expertise in the ceremonial law, they weren't doing the basics of the moral law. So in verse 42 of Luke 11, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees! Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. That's ceremonial law, tithing. But you neglect justice and the love of God, the moral law. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So these guys were experts at tithing. It's like they went into their spice cabinets. They want to tithe everything, even their spices. So you get to see them there with like the little little cans, you know, of like dill weed or something, and they're figuring out exactly what a tenth is. They have spice spreadsheets. You know, these guys are, they're experts on getting the tithing exactly right. But the problem is their hearts are so hard and so callous. And so here's Jesus. He's healing sick people. And they're like, well, you heal on the Sabbath. And so that's not valid. Jesus is like, come on. And, and Jesus is hanging out with the prostitutes. Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors. You know, if, if Jesus were here today, I think he'd be in biker bars. I mean, that's where he hung out. He went to the people who everyone's like, oh, those guys are too far gone. Jesus was there, and he was trying to bring them back into the kingdom of God. He was trying to bring them back to God. And, and the Pharisees, though, they missed all that because they're over there counting their dill. And their spices and going, Jesus, you know, don't hang out with those people. And so they don't have mercy and justice and they miss the kingdom of God. And so because of their hypocrisy, what does Jesus say to them? Verse 42. Key word, one word. 
whoa. It's not like, whoa, like, dude, whoa. It's not like that, whoa. This is like, whoa, as in the Jewish oy vey. Oy, whoa, that's the word. And there's a time when they said this word. Do you know when it was? Was it funerals? This is a funeral word. And maybe you've seen, um, you know, Middle Eastern grieving. It's very different from New England grieving. You know, when we grieve in New England, it's kind of like this. You know, but when they grieve in Middle Eastern countries, there's like dirt flying in the air and people, you know, hitting themselves. It's very expressive. It's very visceral and emotional. And they would cry out, you know, whoa! So, so what's, basically what's happening here is whenever an Old Testament prophet, or in this case Christ speaking in the sense of a prophet, starts a prophecy with woe, it's called a woe oracle. In fact, that's what we just categorize it as. And it's basically God saying, you know what, you guys are as good as dead, I'm going to start the funeral right now. You guys are so gone, you're already so far, let's just start the funeral, because it's over. Woe. So he says, woe to you Pharisees. God hates hypocrisy. Or a second vignette. Do you remember from uh, Acts chapter 5? We just read this a couple Sundays ago. Ananias and Sapphira. You remember those two? And uh, Ananias and Sapphira had apparently made some sort of promise that they were going to sell a piece of land and bring all the proceeds to the church to care for the poor. But when the time came to sell the land, they sold it, but then they said to each other, well, let's keep a little bit for ourselves. But they brought the rest and said, well, here's the whole amount. So the problem was they lied. They said they were going to give a whole amount and they gave part of it. I mean, they could have kept it all for themselves. They didn't have to do it. But they made a promise. They decided to make a show of being ceremonially awesome by giving all of the money from a piece of land. But in reality... They had greed and they were keeping some for themselves. And so what did God do to Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, let's be blunt. God killed them. Gone. And it says the church became very afraid. Like, yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine? If God brought judgment like that in our church, I think there'd be a revival. Because we'd be like, wow, that's right. God's holy. I forgot. I was so busy, I forgot that he was holy. Or just one more story, since we're about to have communion. Here's a ceremony. Jesus has given us this ceremony. The reason we celebrate communion, or Eucharist, or, or you know, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, is because Jesus told us to. He instituted this for his church. But even there, that's a ceremony that needs to, to be uh, congruent with a life of obedience and love for God. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just our last little vignette here to see this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, it's on page 1136. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul, this is the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a church in a city called Corinth, which was in Greece, southern part of Greece. And he's writing to them about different topics. And now he's going to talk to them about how they're, how they're supposed to do the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist communion. Uh, and he says in verse 17, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. You guys shouldn't even have church. It's worse off when you have church than when you don't have it. Do more, does more harm than good. Um, he says, verse 18, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. So when they get together as a body, you know, this one won't talk to that one, and this group likes that pastor, but this group kind of likes this pastor, and this Bible study really doesn't relate to that Bible study. And so they're all pretending to be like, you know, happy church family, but there's all this junk inside. And Paul's saying that's hypocrisy as a church. Or look down at verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat, 
Each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So, uh, just again, by way of background, when it, from what we can tell, in the early church, when they celebrated communion, they didn't do it like this. It wasn't like they got together and had kind of a, a ritual thing. They actually had meals together. So the Christians would pack into people's homes and there would be a meal. They would eat together. It would be called a love feast. And then at, somewhere in that meal, they would share communion as part of the meal, which is kind of a pretty cool idea. I mean, think about it that way. The sense of being a family and being at the Lord's table together. The problem was they'd get together in one of these big love feasts and you know, it's kind of like a big church potluck. So people didn't share. The people who had money and food, they'd come and they'd start eating. And then the people who didn't have anything sort of came in and they looked humiliated. And no one would say, oh, come on over here, eat with us. And they would just go ahead. It was, just, it was chaos. They weren't even caring for the poor in their own midst. And so Paul was like, ugh, this is not the kind of communion that God wants. And so he says down in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's pretty serious. He says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And get this, this verse always just knocks me flat. Every time I read it, it just strikes me afresh. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What does he mean, fallen asleep? Died. So in other words, he's saying, you've been having some real health problems in your church, and the reason is God is disciplining your church because of the, the, the mockery you're making of communion for your lives. Wow, this is serious. This is like, wow. We've got to think about this before we take this communion meal. Am I at odds with people? Is there unconfessed sin in my life? Um, you know, and I think when you pass, when the communion plate comes around, don't just let your kids eat it. This is not snack time. If your kids don't understand the weight of what is happening here, just tell them not to have some. Before to take communion, you really got to think about this is Christ who we're celebrating. And so there's a real gravity to it. And so this is the kind of religion that God detests, is hypocritical religion. Going back now to Proverbs 15.8, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked. As he says so clearly in Amos chapter 5 in the Old Testament, he says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. That's what God wants. is Righteousness and justice and obedience and holiness. That's the kind of worship that God desires. As it says in Proverbs 15.8, the prayer of the upright pleases Him. So what God wants is He wants a ceremonial worship that is flowing out of, that is the overflow from a life that loves Him and a life of obedience and righteousness to Him. That's what God wants. You see, the answer to hypocrisy is not to get rid of organized religion. I think that's what some people do. They're like, organized religion is bad. That's not the problem. Especially if God organized the religion. <laughs> if God tells us we should take communion, then... 
you know, we should take communion. We should do what he says. But the problem isn't organized religion itself. The problem is us, and, and it's me, and the hypocrisy with which I focus on the rituals because that's easy, but I don't really think about my life and the holiness that God requires in my life. Or to put it yet another way, the moral law is more important than the ceremonial law. It's not that the ceremonial law should be thrown out, but the one is more important than the other. As it says in uh, Proverbs 21.3, I'll just read it for you. It says, To do righteousness and justice is chosen by Yahweh rather than sacrifice. God wants righteousness and justice even more than sacrifices. As uh, the prophet Samuel said to King Saul, he said, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants obedience and holiness in our lives. So in other words, the way you treat the people who work for you at the office is more important than whether or not you get your tithing exactly right. It means that the way you handle the gossip that comes over the phone when you're at home and people are like, eh, did you hear about it? And the way we respond to that is far more important than our attendance record at the small group Bible study. Although that's important too, we should do that. It means that, that how you relate to the loner, loser kid in your science class that no one talks to or the kid who comes into the high school group and no one's talking to them and they're off by themselves or the youth group or whatever, the way you, you care for the kids who are on the margins is more important than whether or not you listen to contemporary Christian music or secular music. And I think we as pa- Christian parents are guarding against what our kids hear and see, which is good, we should. But how much more important to shape their hearts in discipleship, to learn how to love and to reach out and to care for those that God has put into our lives, to love our neighbor. But like I said, I always send myself over here because that's easier. <laughs> those kind of, I, it's much easier to have perfect attendance at church than it is to love some of the people in my life. But this is what God has called us to do. And so this is the religion that God wants. He wants religion. He does want our prayers. He wants us to gather for worship. He wants to take communion. But he wants it flowing out of a heart of obedience to him so that the one is merely the manifestation of the other. So how are you doing when you compare yourself to this? I'm not doing so good. (laughs) You know, I, I see some areas where God's done work in my life, but I see a lot of areas where I'm like, wow. In fact, what I see is I'm not very good at keeping either of those, frankly. Like, I don't keep his moral law perfectly. I look at my life and I still see so much selfishness. I see so much callousness in my life. I see impatience and, uh, and greed and, and you know, things that go through my mind, the things I say sometimes. I'm like crying out loud. Like, it's so far to go to be more like Christ. That's so why I don't keep the moral law. But I was thinking about it. I'm like, I don't even keep the ceremonial law either. I, you know, I, I, don't even, I know I don't pray as much as I should. I know I don't read my Bible the way I should. I know I don't give with the kind of generosity that God has shown to me in salvation. So I'm like, darn. I'm over too. Uh, I woke up in the middle of the night this last night. I woke up at four in the morning. Have you ever been woken up by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I hate it when that happens. But uh, <laughs> Lord, I'm trying to sleep. And, uh, and I, just woke in, I just woke up and my mind was going... And I was thinking about, you know, what kind of a father I am. I'm like, ah, oh, like, am I really focusing on my kids the way I should? 
Am I really... You know, every house is a little church. And every dad is the pastor of the church. That's the way God designed families. That's how it's supposed to be. I know it's not always that way. Every house should be a little church. And every dad should be the pastor of the little church. And I was just like, just so convicted. I'm like, ah. You know, I get so busy. And there's so many things to do around the house and do in my life. But it's like, do I really look and, and spend time with my kids and interact with them? And I know I do, but I, I was like, I just want to do that more. I want to really be their pastor as their dad and love them. And so I was really convicted by that. And, you know, I've got to come and preach about hypocrisy. Like, thanks, Lord. Like, if you're going to wake me up at four in the morning, could it be something else? Like, no, this is what it's going to be. And so what the law of God tends to do, in my life anyway, is that it acts like a massive two-handed war hammer that God uses to utterly crush my self-righteousness. And so when I look at what God requires of me, all of my paltry little, like, hmm, look at this God. I'm, I'm it's like God just goes, boom, smashed. And all of the things I would boast about before God and take pride in have been reduced to dust before Him. I realize that His law is so perfect in my life. It's so imperfect. And as I'm crushed to dust underneath the requirements of God, there's only one place I look to find hope. And that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say, oh, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. And I look at Jesus, and this is the one guy in all of human history who kept all the rules the way God wanted to. And this is the one guy in all of human history who worshipped God the way God wanted. And not only did Jesus bring sacrifices, he became the sacrifice. His whole life was the sacrifice. And so where I have utterly failed to keep God's laws, Jesus has kept them in my place. And where I have failed to worship God, Jesus is the sacrifice for sin in my place. And so Christ is my righteousness and Christ is my forgiveness. Christ is my religion. You know what my religion is? It's Jesus. Jesus is my forgiver. He's my Savior. He's my righteousness. And so I can stand before God, not because I went to seminary, not because I'm a pastor or anything like that, not because of my track record, certainly. I can stand before God because I'm covered in the righteousness and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's the message of Christianity. I mean, in fact, maybe I should be really clear about that. Christianity is not about improving your life. Do you get that? I'm really worried that, including myself, we come in and we think about Christianity as kind of like a religious version of self-improvement. Christianity is not about improving your life. Because you can't improve your life good enough for God. If, If you think that's what this is... They're like, okay, I'm going to come into church, I'm going to get myself together, and I'm going to bring my kids to church because they need some morals and all that. You're missing it. That's not what it's about. Christianity is not about improving your life. It's about exchanging your life. Where I take my life and I let it die, and I say, God, this is done, and I confess it, and I lay it at the foot of the cross, and I receive in exchange the life of Jesus in me. So Christianity is not about trying to be a better person. It's about giving up on all that and letting the life of the risen Jesus empower me to live a godly life. To come to the end of myself and to come to the beginning of God's grace. 
and to say, Lord, you've got to do it because I, I can't do this. It's amazing what he can do in our lives when we surrender ourselves, receive his forgiveness. And then what happens is, this is a cool thing, is that the Holy Spirit starts to do this massive uh, renovation project in my character. And he even begins to change me so that I, I do start becoming more holy. And I start becoming the father that God's called me to be. And I start becoming the Christian that God's called me to be and the pastor. Because God is at work. It's not now me saying, I'm going to make myself better. It's Christ in me changing me. I have been crucified with Christ. And the life I live, I live by the grace of God. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so that's the Christian life is God exchanging his life for our life through the death of Christ on the cross. That's awesome. And that's the good news. I think most of us here realize we can't save ourselves. We've gone too far. You don't have to. Christ can do it. But you have to take him in as Savior and Lord. I heard a really cool story uh, a couple weeks ago. I was at a conference, and there was this guy talking. He's talking about his friend, who's a Christian guy. And this friend of his had this lady that he knew who invited to church. And the lady was, she was, I don't know if she's an atheist or skeptic or whatever, but she was a college professor. She was really smart and really well-educated and, you know, all that. And she didn't want to have anything to do with it. But she came with this guy to church because he invited her. And during church service, they had all these people standing up and giving what we call testimonies in Christian jargon. It's when you stand up and, well, if you were here last Sunday, we had some of those. It's where you stand up and you talk about how you've come to accept Christ and how Christ has changed your life. And people were telling these stories. And during the stories, this woman leans over to the guy and she says, you know, I don't believe any of this. And this guy, in kind of a moment of inspired wisdom, said back to her, he goes, goes, I know, I know you don't believe it. Then he leaned back and he said, but wouldn't you love to? And her eyes welled up with tears and she started weeping. Because of course she would. (laughs) Of course we want that. But we have to lay down our lives, lay down our self-righteousness, and just receive the life of Christ and experience this amazing thing of God's grace doing in us what we can never do for ourselves. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me?